All right, I want you to imagine for a moment that there were tiny electrodes placed on your brain right now. But don't freak out. We're a church plant. We can't afford tiny electrodes, okay? This is just a thought experiment. Okay, so there's tiny electrodes placed on your scalps, and there's this team of neuroscientists on the sides, and they're all real-time tracking our, our brain waves. All right? And as we begin, the initial scan shows that all of our brain waves are doing different things. We're preoccupied. We're thinking about uh, different things. And, and so there, no two brains in the room right now are in sync or in line. They're all kind of doing their own thing based on your own individual thought patterns right now. But then I begin talking. And I'm not just talking. I, I start to tell a story. And I mean, it's a really good story. And let's also pretend that I'm a really good storyteller, okay? And as the story unfolds, the neuroscientists start to see movement in the brain region that's processing sounds. Like right now, your auditory cortex is firing because you're hearing me right now. But then suddenly, something amazing starts to happen as we all kind of lock into the story. The, the introduction gives way. We're, we're kind of wrapped up into the characters. And now there's, there's movement in the plot, and what the neuroscientists tell us that as our brain waves begin to move up and down together, that our blood is flowing to the same regions of the brain, and all of our brains in this room actually start to sync up. The screens on everybody's, uh, uh, all of the neuroscientists are actually showing the same movements, the same patterns as we all collectively together, you as the audience and me as the speaker actually sync up. It's almost as if our brains are all connected with wires. Researchers call it neural entrainment or this brain alignment between speakers and listeners. Our heart rates will sync up. Our brain waves will align and the story connects us all together in this amazing neurological dance. Neuroscience will tell us that when you want to motivate, persuade, or be remembered, they say start with a story. And especially if it's a story of human struggle and eventual triumph, it will capture people's hearts because it captures our brains first. It's an amazing thing the way we've been designed. Stories are the single best vehicle that we have to transfer our ideas to one another. For all of our modern marvels and, 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 and new ways of doing things, it's as old as story to communicate the best of our ideas. You see, stories will trigger a neurochemical that forces us to pay attention to speakers, to empathize with them, to understand them, and even get excited about their ideas. Our brains are hardwired for story. You see this in children from the earliest days. You see it to adults as we flock to the movies to see the latest installment of our favorite stories. It's humanity's universal language. Every culture, without exception, tells stories, and they captivate us. Stories cross geography, language, race, economics. It's almost like the universal human language. And the genius of a story is not only that it communicates plot, but it also communicates principles. The all-knowing, all-powerful, all-wise God chose to reveal himself to us, not through a lecture, but through a story. Think about that. He could have chosen any medium, any method that he wanted, but he chose to reveal who he is 
through a story. So today, we are looking at a short story in the book of Ruth. It's four short chapters. On its own, just as a literary piece, it's beautiful in the way that it tells the story. And also, its theological insight is deep. We could do a whole series, and at some point we probably will, on the book of Ruth. It's full of emotion, plot twists, character development, surprises, and it, it encourages us and invites us to identify with its characters. And as we walk through the story today, we'll see three scenes. The first will be the resolution. That's scene one. Scene two will be the resilience. And the final scene will be the redemption. And as we, after we look at her story, we'll draw out some implications for our lives. So let's begin in chapter one, verse one. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephraimites from Bethlehem in Judah, and they went into the country of Moab and remained there. Now, at the beginning, we, we kind of have the setting. It tells us that her story takes place in the time of the judges. If you remember last week, we looked at Rahab. Her story comes out of the book of Joshua as the Israelites were about to enter into the land for the very first time. And the book goes and shows how Israel establishes itself as a nation. The very following book is the book of Judges. If, Israel, if Joshua is Israel on the rise, Joshua is Israel on the decline. It's a time of unchecked moral corruption, civil unrest and division, and religious decline. Every couple of chapters, the, the author of Judges summarizes what's going on like this. And everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It's a cycle of judgment and deliverance. And, and, and the book of Ruth is this diamond in the rough during a tumultuous and bleak and hopeless time. It shows that even in the midst of despair, God is at work to bring light into the darkness. Now, as our, as our scene opens up, we see this family and we're introduced to them. They're from Bethlehem, Elimelech and Naomi and their two sons. But immediately conflict enters the story, right? There's a famine in the land. Now, it's ironic that there's a famine in Bethlehem because the word Bethlehem means house of bread or house of food. So there's some irony going on that, that the house of food and bread is empty and there's famine. And this family is forced to make a life or death decision. And so they decide to pack up and leave Bethlehem and go where there's food because Bethlehem is not living up to its name. And you have to remember there's no modern machinery. There's no um, shipping industry to just move food around the country. When your city and country runs out of food, you have to move. You've got to go. And so this family decides to head to Moab because they've heard that there's food there. Now we hear Moab, that sounds great. There's food, let's go. But to an Israelite, Moab is not exactly the friendly town next door. They worshiped false gods. They were hostile to Israel. To put the matter bluntly, the Israelites wanted nothing to do with the Moabites. But given the circumstances, this family is forced to make a tough decision. It's less than ideal, but to stay means certain death. Even though Moab is the last place that any self-respecting Jew would go. It's not a safe sanctuary. It'd be like during the Cold War going, I think we'll just go spend some time in Russia. 
That sounds like a good idea. That's how the relationship was between Israel and Moab. Now, if this were a TV miniseries, we'd be screaming at the TV, no, anywhere but Moab. Don't go to Moab. Bad things will happen there. But what else are you going to do? I mean, your family is facing starvation. You hear of this town 50 miles away, and there's food there. And so they make the hard choice, and they go. Now, verse 3. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. And these two sons took Moabite wives. One was named Orpah. The other's name was Ruth. They lived there about 10 years. And then both Mahlon and Kilion died. So that woman was left without her two sons and without her husband. See, instead of life, when they get to Moab, they're confronted with death. Elimelech, the breadwinner, has died. And now Naomi is left with her two sons. I mean, imagine that mom in a foreign country and a hard place. And Elimelech, her husband, has died. So they grow up a little bit, and maybe it's not her first choice, but her sons take Moabite wives. And then the passing years quickly become a decade. Think about it. Each passing year, hoping that these wives would become pregnant with a child, and there's nothing. Emptiness. And then more emptiness, because Malon and Kilion die. So imagine these three women left husbandless, childless, barren, and without hope. Imagine Naomi. Do you see her? Consider her grief. Consider these hard 10 years. Nothing has gone her way. Imagine all of the what-ifs. What if we had just stayed? What if we had gone somewhere else? All her hopes are crushed. At night when she's crying herself to sleep, she says, it's not supposed to be this way. It wasn't supposed to be this way. Instead of life, Moab has become a place of death. So the Bible tells us that Naomi decides, I'm getting out of here. She doesn't want to walk down those roads one more day, and she wants to go back home. The famine she's heard in Israel is over, and perhaps maybe there's a relative or a friend who will take in this lonely, bereft widow. And she assumes, naturally, these Moabite daughter-in-laws of mine will probably just want to stay here, right? I mean, this is their hometown. This is their home land. They'll probably just want to pick up their lives here. They know people. They have connections. This is their best shot at finding another husband. They're still relatively young. Maybe they can meet some guy and start over. Maybe it's a second chance at life. Naomi wants the best for them. And she even prays that the Lord would bless them in Moab, that he would be kind to them as they've been kind to her, provide another husband for each of them. But at first, both Orpah and Naomi say, no, no, don't leave us. I mean, imagine what suffering does to bring people together. It's just this sisterhood that had been bound together by suffering. Imagine them on the road there, their bags packed. Life's been hard and they're full of tears, and this is a hard goodbye, and no one wants to leave. So with tears in her eye, Naomi starts to reason through all of the emotion and the tears. She says, ladies, I'm old. I've got no more sons left. 
Even if the unthinkable happened and I got married and pregnant today with twins, would you just wait around for them to grow up? Your better life, your best shot at life is back in Moab. Then Naomi says in verse 13, No, my daughters, it is exceedingly bitter for me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And they lifted their voices, verse 14, and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. In her pain, Naomi says, you don't want to stay with me. God's hand is against me. You need to get as far away from me as possible. I'm cursed. And so by your nearness, you're cursed as well. So Orpah makes a tough choice. I don't blame her. She listens to reason and figures This is the best chance I've got. She kisses Naomi and heads back to Moab. But the Bible says Ruth clung to Naomi. Look what she says. Verse 15, Naomi said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after her. See, if you catch up, you can still go back with her. Now, don't miss this. If Ruth stays in Moab, that's her best shot at marriage, kids, and a future. But to stay in Moab also means she goes back to her culture, back to her people, back to her gods. Sinclair Ferguson puts the choice between, before Oprah, I always want to say Oprah, before Orpah and Ruth like this. Here's how he puts it. For both of them, this is what they're facing. Yahweh plus nothing in Bethlehem or everything minus Yahweh and Moab. Let me say that again. It's really succinct, but it's powerful. To stay, to go to, Mo, uh, to Bethlehem, it's to have Yahweh plus nothing. There's no promises of a better life. But to stay in Moab means you don't have Yahweh, but you have the shot at everything else. This is the choice before her. Ruth counts the costs. Her next words are powerful They're unwavering and they're courageous. I'm going to read them to you. Look at verse 16. Do not urge me to leave you or to go to uh, or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. And may the Lord do so more to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined and resolved to go with her, she said, no more. This right here is evidence of Ruth's conversion. I don't think it happened right then, but this is evidence that something has happened in her life. She's turned away from her former life and turned towards her new life no matter the cost. I don't want you to think this is just blind sentimentality or friendship loyalty. It is those things. But more than that, Ruth knows the implications of leaving behind her heritage and her gods. She's counted the cost. Her faith now has been tested, and it's shown to be genuine. She's made up her mind. She is going to go wherever Naomi goes and lodge where she lodges. And to show that her decision is more than just personal loyalty, she states emphatically, your people will be my people and your God, my God. 
I want to have my body buried where yours is buried. I can't go back. I've left it all behind. I am no longer who I once was. This is who I am now. With Ruth's resolution, Naomi says, okay, let's go to Bethlehem. Now, the Bible tells us when they arrive, this is a small town, right? And when they arrive, they're, they're walking in, and the people recognize Naomi, and it causes a stir. See, everybody knows everybody, and they recognize Naomi. They remember when, when she was leaving with Elimelech and her two sons, but now she looks different. She's older. She has the face of someone who's been through hell and back. There's bitterness there. She has the face of someone who suffered. And so someone comes up to her and they say, Naomi, is that you? She says, don't call me Naomi anymore. See, Naomi's name means pleasant or delight. And just hearing her name, she can't take it anymore. And in her grief, she says, don't call me Naomi. It's not my name anymore. She says, call me Mara. And everyone would have known. Mara means bitterness. She says, life has been hard. There's no delight anymore. Only bitterness left. She says, I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. You can't blame her, can you? for being bitter and anxious about the future? I mean, where is she going to live? What's she going to eat? How is she going to survive? Have you ever felt like the hand of God was against you? Seemed like nothing you could do can make it go right. You can't make sense of why things are happening the way they're happening. Hope seems like a distant memory. You feel like you're cursed, like Naomi. See, suffering has this way to really bring out the rawness and the realness of our faith. It has a way of making us question even our most deeply held theological beliefs. It's all fun and games when it's theoretical, but suffering puts it to the test. And right now in the midst of her pain, she's broken and raw. She blames God and she's angry. She can't see how any good could ever come from any of this. And the pain of her brokenness has even blinded her to the reality that this young woman, Ruth, has stood by her, right? Suffering has a way of, 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 of feeling like the walls are closing in. You can't even really see what's around you. See, we can. We're, we're reading the story. We know, hey, you're not alone. If you've read the story, you know how it ends, that God has not forsaken her. And what she needs right now is a friend, not someone who rebukes her with cold theology, not someone who tells her, hey, you really shouldn't be so bitter and angry, and you really shouldn't talk about God like that. That's not what she needs right now. She needs a friend, someone who will stay by her side and provide real comfort. And that's what she has in Ruth. And that's instructive for us because there's all kinds of examples in the Bible of people who are going through very hard things and they're even saying things and believing things that are theologically incorrect. And yet, God is patient. You don't see God judging her or smiting her or bringing fire from heaven down. God's not defensive. He doesn't strike her down for falsely held beliefs. And all the while, he's in the background working out a story of redemption. 
Now, of course, she, Naomi's going to need some good theology. She's going to need to hear good truths. I'm not rejecting that. She's going to need to balance all of this out. But time and place is so important. We need to be sensitive to where people are and not just drop cold, even if it's good theology, on people in the midst of their pain and suffering. Sometimes the best way to be a friend is just to listen. Ask good questions and not talk so much. Be there to help them process. Sometimes being a good friend means just bringing them a meal so they don't have to think about the everyday details of life. Sometimes it means just being there and crying. That's what she has in Ruth. So as the curtains close on scene one, the narrator reminds us that Ruth and Naomi have returned to Bethlehem at the time of the barley harvest. It seems like Bethlehem is living back up to its name. That's Ruth's resolve. Now let's see her resilience. Ruth is resilient throughout this next scene. I hope you'll keep that word in mind because everything Ruth does shows her resilience, her ability to adjust to suffering and, and adversity and to be patient for the Lord to move, to do her very best and trust God for the outcomes. Look at chapter two, verse one. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. So here's what's going on. As the curtains open up on scene two, we find out Naomi has a relative on her husband's side named Boaz. And the Bible describes him as a worthy man, which means he would have been well thought of in the town, and also he would have been really wealthy. He's a landowner, okay? He's got fields, he's got grain. Naomi at this point is broken and hurting. We're not told where they're staying, but Ruth is determined to find provision. Remember how I said a good friend can maybe just provide a meal? So Ruth says, look, you stay here. I know it's bitter. I know you're grieving. I'm going to at least go find where we can get some food. So she says, I'm going to go glean in a field where I can find some favor. Now, gleaning is like the Old Testament version of food stamps, okay? Here's how the process worked. When you would harvest your fields, just inevitably, you're, you're chopping it down and some grain falls on the ground. And the Old Testament law said, whatever falls to the ground, let it stay there. And then be gracious and generous to allow the poor and needy to enter your fields and pick up the grain on the ground. It's kind of a beautiful system of saying, look, we have plenty. We don't need to, to pick up everything that falls in the ground and then open up our fields. Let the poor and the hungry come and fill their baskets so that everybody has food. It's beautiful. This allowed the poor needy to pick up what was left behind. And so Ruth sets out to go glean in a field. And as she does, she happens to come to the field that belongs to Boaz. Now again, Ruth doesn't know about Boaz, but we do. And so we're thinking, oh, wait a minute, maybe something's going on here. We know he's a relative of the family, but Ruth doesn't know. And we're kind of forced with the question, of all the fields in Bethlehem, how is it that Ruth stumbles upon the field of one of her relatives? See, this isn't accidental. It's not mere coincidence. It's not sheer luck. This is the hand of God in the background of the narrative. And we start to see him move. And as the story goes, Ruth goes into the field and starts working hard. 
Now, Boaz is the landowner. He's, he's kind of walking through, checking on the day's operations, and he notices Ruth, right? She's a Moabite. She's not an Israelite. She's new. She would have stuck out. And so Boaz pulls a worker aside and says, hey, who is that over there? And the worker says, she's the Moabite that came back with Naomi. Remember, everybody's talking about it. And Boaz says, oh, yeah, that's right. And the worker goes on to tell him, man, she got here early in the morning, and she has been hustling, picking grain, doing what she can to provide for Naomi. And so Boaz goes over to Ruth. Look what he says in chapter 2, verse 8. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not glean another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. And have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you're thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Essentially what Boaz does is he offers her provision and protection. See, he tells her, you're not going to wear out your welcome here. You don't have to look to other fields. You are welcome here. And there will be plenty of grain and plenty of water for you. In fact, later on in the story, Boaz tells his workers, hey, if you notice Ruth behind you, let extra grain fall on the ground so that she has more to pick up. He's working behind the scenes to make sure that Ruth has a good haul for the day. And he also says, listen, you don't have to worry about your safety here. I've instructed all of my men not to put a hand on you. You're not vulnerable here. You are under my protection. You've got to remember, in this culture, especially single women, especially single foreign women, we're extremely vulnerable to sexual assault. No one knows her. She's a disposable Moabite for all they care. No one's going to come look for her. And so someone might think they can get by with something. But here, Boaz offers his protection. He gives her special, gracious, favorable treatment. And she knows what she's been given is awesome. And so she's floored by it. Literally, the Bible says she gets down on the floor and she says, why have I found such favor in your sight? And Boaz says, it's not you who've been kind to me. You have been kind to me by the way that you have been kind to Naomi. I've heard about how you left your native land to stick by her side, to help her and serve her. And look at you now, working hard to make sure that you have something to eat. In that moment, he doesn't see her outsiderness. He doesn't see her Moabiteness. She's not an enemy. She is a welcomed guest. He even prays that the Lord would bless her and give her a full word. He says, I pray that the Lord would spread his wings over you. The sign of protection and provision. And by the way, if you remember from our story last week, maybe you're putting some of the pieces together when you hear that name Boaz. You thought, Boaz, haven't we heard that name before? And we have. We have heard that name before. Matthew's genealogy in Matthew 1 verse 5 says this, that Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth. Boaz's mom is Rahab. Now think about that for a moment. Boaz would have grown up hearing stories about the conquest, hearing stories about his mom. He knew the story of a woman who had a hard past, 
who needed grace. See, other men might have seen Ruth and said, she's just a foreigner scrounging for food like a parasite, but not Boaz. He saw something familiar. It reminded him of a brave woman who had left her nation, who had left her gods to embrace the Lord. So he sees her and he says, how could I not offer her grace and provision? Some men did that for my mom back in the day. How could I not do that for her? So later that evening, Ruth leaves the field and she goes home and she's bringing in an impressive haul for the day. It's 29 pounds. That's like Costco size, right? That's like the flatbed dolly size. And so Naomi is expecting like, hopefully enough to make some bread. And she says, where did you go today? Whose field did you glean in? And Ruth says, I think his name was Boaz. She says, Boaz? Come to think of it, the penny drops, the light switch goes on. She's like, wait a minute. He's our family. He's related to Elimelech. And for the first time in a long time, Naomi feels the power of hope. She feels God is on the move, and she's starting to feel the hand of God turn to provide for them and to protect them. See, in her despair and distress, she hasn't even considered the possibility of Boaz as a provider, as a relative. And now in light of the favor that Ruth has found, she starts to put the pieces together. She says in verse 20, Ruth, this man Boaz is a close relative of ours. He's actually one of our redeemers. And so she would have probably had to explain this to her, and I'll explain it to you. Here's what that means. Boaz is a kinsman redeemer. That's a cultural phrase, and I'll unpack it for you. There's actually two cultural practices wrapped up in that phrase. The first one is the redemption of family land. That word in Hebrew, redeemer, is the Hebrew word goel, and it means to, to buy back or to redeem something. So according to Israelite law, a kinsman redeemer was someone who had the right to buy back ancestral land of a family who had lost or sold it. So when they were giving out land back in the book of Joshua, different tribes and different families were given certain plots of land. And the hope was that these, this land would remain in your family forever. Now, if you'd come across hard times and maybe had to sell your land, this law was a provision to say, look, if you ever come across hard times, lose your land or have to sell it, one of your redeemers, one of, someone close to you can actually be a benefactor, step in and buy that land back for you. And the person who has it, if, it's not, if they're not in the family, actually has to give it up. So the hope was that the land that God had originally given you, you could always keep it in the family. So that's one aspect of what's going on. The second is something we looked back uh, in, in, the, in the week where we did uh, Tamar's story, and it's called leveret marriage. It was a cultural practice that, uh, that, that provided, uh, uh, so that it made sure that um, a, a, a person never died without an heir. See, in this culture, it would have been an utter calamity to die without a male descendant because it would mean that your family line would be erased from history. And so to ensure that widows were provided for and to ensure that there was a continuation of generational legacy, the widow would be allowed to marry the next oldest brother, right? And in Tamar's case, she went down the line. 
And any children from that marriage are counted as children for that deceased brother. They kind of fill the vacancy on the family tree, if that makes sense. Now, in Ruth's case, there's no brothers left, right? Mahon, Kilion are dead. And so a kinsman redeemer not only could buy land back, but a close relative could step in and perform the responsibility as the Leverite. Leverite means brother. So they could step in like a brother and help provide another child. Again, when we hear this, all we hear is creepy, right? But in this culture, when such a high value is placed on family legacy, this became a provision for that. And so the question that we've got to be asking is, will Boaz do it? Will he step in as the kinsman redeemer? Will he be willing to spend his own money to buy back the land that they are losing? Would he go for an interracial marriage with Ruth? See, to redeem them, Boaz would need to intervene. He would have to step in to this situation. He would need to take Naomi and Ruth as his own responsibility to care for them, to provide for them. He would need to take on their needs and troubles and bear them as if they were his own. That's what it means to redeem. It means to so identify with them that their problems, their sorrows, their pain becomes yours and to do something about it. So all that to say, Naomi tells Ruth to keep going back to his field. Don't go anywhere else and go for the rest of the harvest season. And during these several months, this gives Naomi some time to come up with a plan. And at the end of the harvest season, she's got her plan. And so she tells Ruth, here's what you're going to do. Wash up. Put on your best dress. Put on some perfume while you're at it. And then wait till Boaz is asleep on the threshing floor. Then quietly, under the cover of night, go to him. Uncover his feet and lay down and wait for him to wake up. Now we're hearing that and we're going, wait a minute. I think I've seen that in a movie before. Like, what exactly is Naomi asking Ruth to do here? Was she offering Ruth to Boaz for a late night rendezvous? Now, while that would make good, a good script for a soap opera, that's actually not what's going on here. A closer reading of the text leads us to a different direction. See, first of all, you need to know that the threshing floor wasn't this private, secluded area. It was actually a communal sleeping ground where the workers on the field would work all day, then they'd have a meal together, and they would go to sleep at night and stay there to protect the field to ensure against thieves who would come in and try to take the harvest. Second, the cover of darkness provided the ability for Ruth to go to Boaz uh, to, offer, uh, to, to ask him to marry her. See, in this culture, not only did women not approach men, but they certainly didn't go up and ask them to marry them. And so the cover of darkness provides, in a, in a culture of, of shame and honor, provides her the opportunity to do the unthinkable. Nighttime even allowed Boaz the opportunity to say no to her proposal without shaming anybody in the process. And so Ruth goes to him, just like Naomi tells her, and she waits till Boaz is asleep, and she uncovers his feet. And the reason that's important is, with the night cool air, with his feet uncovered, he would eventually wake up, right? 
And he would be gently stirred awake instead of, you know, kind of poking him or, or, or tapping him uh, and him uh, coming awake in a, in a loud kind of way that would wake up the other people around them. This allowed him to kind of stir a little bit. Like you do when the, maybe your, your spouse takes the covers and you're going, hey, what are you, you know, what's going on? You wake up in a more gentle kind of way. And so he awakes and finds Ruth at his feet. And he, and he says, Who, you know, it's dark. He says, who's there? And she says, I am Ruth your servant. And she says, spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Remember when Boaz prayed that the Lord would spread his wings over her? She basically says, hey, will you be an answer to your prayer for me? Will you redeem us? Will you spread your wings of protection over us? And Boaz replies, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, for you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. See, Ruth is humble and bold. She asks Boaz to fill his right as a redeemer, and she's basically proposing marriage to him. And Boaz is delighted at the request. He praises her and says, you are, you are kind and you are worthy. We also find out that Boaz is older and he's just charmed by the fact that she's not going after younger men or men closer to her age. It's a beautiful story of redemption for the both of them. See, Boaz, we find out, has never been married or maybe he was married and widowed himself. But then in verse 12, we find out that there's a potential glitch that could mess the whole thing up. It's like a good plot line, right? It seems like everything's about to happen, but there's this one thing. Look what he says in verse 12. Boaz says, it's true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain here tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lay down here until the morning. So we find out there's a relative who's technically closer uh, than Boaz in, in, in the family line. And so he has kind of this first right of refusal on uh, being kinsman redeemer. And so Boaz tells her, I'm going to go to him in the morning and we're going to get everything worked out one way or another. You will be redeemed. And so the question we were asking is, will this unnamed redeemer step up? Is this developing love story going to take a different turn? How will it all End. And so with that, scene two closes. Now look at verse, uh, chapter four, and we'll see Ruth's redemption. Now everything is set up from scene three. Chapter four tells us that early in the morning, Ruth goes out to the town center to wait and look for this unnamed closer relative. And as uh, the Lord would have it, he's, he's there early in the morning. And so Boaz grabs him, says, hey, brother, sit down. He grabs 10 elders, and they have a, uh, a, an impromptu court case. And Boaz, like a boss, has everybody sit down, and he lays out what's going on. And he says to the unnamed relative, he says, listen, Naomi is selling her land. It's all that she has left of her previous life, and she needs the money in order to, to make provision for her and Ruth. And, it, and if you remember, that land belonged to our relative, Elimelech. Now, this is the first we've heard of the land in question. Up until this point, we haven't, we haven't known all the details. But essentially, Naomi's like the trustee of the family land. 
And she needs to sell it in order to have money to live. And this is where the redeemer would come in, that they could actually buy the land and now it would still stay within the family and yet Naomi would still be able to have the proceeds from that sale in order to make provision. It's like a win-win situation. And Boaz tells the relative of Naomi, you are closer than I. And so will you be her redeemer? Will you buy the land? And so the relative says, yeah, okay, I'll do that. I mean, he's thinking, man, this is, this is land. It's an opportunity to, to keep it in the family, and I'll be helping out one of our relatives. That, that sounds like a good thing to me. But then Boaz says, hey, by the way, I don't know if I mentioned this earlier, but in addition to buying the land, you're also going to be taking Ruth, the Moabitess, as your wife. And the guy goes, oh, wait, hold on. Hold on, stop the, stop the contract writing. Okay, hold on, wait. Ruth, the Moabite? And he says, yeah, you're going to have to take Ruth, and you're going to have to fulfill the role of the leveret so that Elimelech's family line doesn't end. And when he hears that, this closer relative changes his mind. He ultimately decides that he doesn't want the land um, in exchange for Ruth. He, he realizes, man, I have sons, and to, to take on this other wife and to have another heir would, would mess up the thing that I have going on. And he doesn't want to take on the financial responsibility. And so he says, I'm out. Why don't you do it? And this gives Boaz the right to step in as the redeemer. And Boaz announces to the elders who were giving um, oversight to these proceedings, he says, I will be the redeemer. I will buy back the land and I will take Ruth as my wife. And the Bible tells us next that Boaz and Ruth get married and they have a son named Obed. And if you remember, Ruth was married to Malon for 10 years and no children. But very quickly, Boaz and Ruth have a child. The Lord opens up her womb and allows her to give birth to a son. And the chapter ends, the book ends with this genealogy saying that they uh, gave birth to Obed and Obed fathered Jesse and Jesse fathered King David. And that family line eventually led to the line of Jesus Christ. Both Ruth and Naomi are redeemed. They're provided, they're protected for by Boaz and their redemption led to the redemption of the whole world. So you might be asking, how is this an Advent sermon? It's kind of the question we've been asking as we're looking at the mothers of Jesus. See, Advent is about the coming of Christ, and all of this pre-story leads to the nativity story. See, Ruth gives birth to the grandfather of King David in Bethlehem, and generations later, in that very town where this redemption took place, Jesus himself would be born. And so as this Advent season, I want us to consider two questions as we close. Here's the first question. What are the gods that you need to leave behind? What are the gods that you need to leave behind? See, Ruth teaches us an important lesson in the first half of her story of what it means to put your faith in and trust in God. Did you remember that moment? The moment where her faith was tested and it kind of came alive as it was put to the test. Do you remember her? Do you see her on that road with Naomi? Culturally, pragmatically, it made sense for her to abandon Yahweh, abandon um, the Israelite culture, and go back to her homeland. Economically, it makes better sense for her to go back home. And yet she has learned God plus nothing equals everything. 
and everything minus God equals nothing. She's realized that going back is no good, that God plus nothing else means I have everything, and everything minus God equals nothing. Have you turned your back on the substitute gods of our culture and turned towards the one true and living God? Have you stopped trying to find your salvation on your own and put your trust in the salvation that's offered to you in Jesus Christ? So what are the gods that you need to leave behind? I want to suggest that there are three cultural gods that our culture puts up in front of us. The first is humanism. Now, again, these gods don't have temples in our city. We don't have like wooden carve outs on our mantle. What humanism says is just be the best human you can be. You don't need God to be good. All you got to do, just volunteer at your local nonprofit of choice. Give to them, tie to them. Make sure you tweet about it so people know who you stand with. Humanism says we've evolved past religion, and now we can be a nice, tolerant society where people can be whatever they want to be. They can do whatever they want to do as long as no one is significantly harmed around you. In this kind of, uh, 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 in, in humanism, truth is relativized. It's your truth and my truth. There's nothing really true, and it elevates personal choice to the highest good. Now it's mass and it, and it shows up in all kinds of ways, but that's one of the cultural gods put before us every single day to believe in and give our life to. The second one is this, materialism. This says, find your identity in your things. It's important during this um, Christmas season, right? Because, I mean, I, you're getting, your inboxes are filled with advertisements. It's all over the place. Materialism says, what you acquire tells you that you have worth. Pleasure and comfort are found in what you have. Since there's nothing beyond the grave, get all that you can to enjoy this life now. Work hard, play hard, and make sure you look around you as well. Because see, in materialism, comparison is the gift that keeps on giving. The third idol is this, naturalism. This is kind of the colder form of humanism. It says that science has freed us from the silliness of religion. We've answered all the questions and there's nothing real that can't be touched, seen, tasted, or heard. Morality is nothing more than a social construct. And as our social uh, needs change, so can morality too. Death is simply, simply a natural process of life. And you'll really start to live when you come to grips with, that cold, with the cold, hard facts. Ultimately, the universe is meaningless. It's meaningless. And so the only meaning that you can hope to find is the one that you create for yourself. Family, have you turned your back on these cultural idols? In the face of what makes cultural sense, have you said, if I have nothing but I have Christ, then I have everything and the second thing is this, and we'll close with it. Not only do you, you need to ask what are the cultural gods that you need to turn away from, but what are you looking for for redemption? Where are you looking for? See, turning away from something is one thing, but you have to decide what are you going to turn towards? Everybody is looking for redemption somewhere. 
And the book of Ruth provides a beautiful picture of redemption that's offered for us. I mean, consider how different the beginnings of Ruth and Naomi's story are from the end of the book. Their conditions are radically reversed. Bitterness becomes pleasantness. Emptiness is made full. They go from seeking to find rest to having it. Seeking provision and getting it. Their insecurity becomes secure. Their story starts with death and it ends with life. This word redemption, goel, is used over and over throughout the story, and it's also used over and over throughout the whole Bible to speak about God. The book of Ruth is pointing us towards our great redeemer, God himself. We could go on and on. I'll give you one example. In Isaiah chapter 60, verse 16, as God is speaking to his people, he says, I am the Lord, your savior and your redeemer. You don't have to look anywhere else for it. Do you remember when Boaz took uh, Naomi and Ruth as his responsibility? Do you remember when he stepped in as his, their redeemer? He took on their needs and troubles and bore them as if they were his very own. And that's exactly what Christ, our redeemer, does for us. He intervenes. He steps in. Advent is about Jesus stepping in to human history. He took you and me as his responsibility. He took on our needs and our troubles as if they were his very own. And our redeemer, Christ himself, our Goel, hung crucified on the cross to atone for our sin and to buy us back out of our slavery. His resurrection brings power over death and life to all those who put their trust in him. First Peter chapter two says it like this. He himself bore our sins in his body on that tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but you have been returned and redeemed to the shepherd and overseer of your faith. Friends, every single person in this room, without exception, needs redemption. And Advent is the story about how our Redeemer lives for us to bring healing, forgiveness, and redemption. Let's look to him and trust him this morning.